<laughs> Good afternoon. This is a queer Jamfy fan of the British Blacklist, and I'm here with some geezer. Yeah, he's a very talented geezer. Um, but I don't know how he introduced himself because I could say some things, but he might have other things to say. So please, this wonderful, talented geezer, introduce yourself, who you are and what you do, how you introduce the work that you do. Uh, first of all, uh, good afternoon. Happy New Year, madam. Uh, thank you very much for the introduction. My name is Dane Baptiste and I am a comedian, writer, occasional actor. And when I'm not doing that, I am a civilian of the world and a part of a collective consciousness experiencing this thing called life as a tight field of energy within this carbon life form. Usual things, just, it's just a geezer, isn't it? <laughs> yes, you just, you literally threw my geezer and blew it up and turned it into... But that's what all geezers are, really. So yeah, yeah. that's all. But no, I, I, being designated as a geezer is fine. I mean, that's the idea about comedy is that I'm trying to be the everyman. So yeah, a geezer is very apt introduction. Thank you. Happy New Year. Happy um, New Year. Has it been... Oh God, I don't even want to answer this. I might cry. Has it been a happy New Year? Like, what was it? 11 days into the New Year. Has it been happy for you? You know what? On the whole, it's been happy. I have learned, especially with the events of the year prior, that uh, happiness is reality minus expectation. And there's something that you should grab. It can be very fleeting, so you do grab it. So I've had yeah instances of happiness. There's been some sorrow and there's been trying times. But on the whole, I've been happy. And it's been, so far, uh, 2021 has been, has treated me very well. I think it's about working out how you respond to adversity rather than trying to completely avoid it. You're damn right. Um, would you look back on 2020 and say that it was the shittest year in the whole wide world? Or have you had worse years? Because everyone's just like saying 2020 was shit, but... In reality, for myself personally, it apart from yes, yeah, some sorrow and loss and some stuff like that, I've actually had the, the, the lockdown and the pause actually helped me refocus. And actually, some great things have happened because the world decided to stop itself. Mm -hmm. How would you look at twenty twenty for you? Um, I am the same as you. Mm. Um, I, I think that uh, twenty twenty people describe it as one of the worst years. I feel like there are people that and. There are generations of ancestors that have lived before us that would be like, no, like a good year to me. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I think I think with all experiences of tragedy and adversity, it's all relative. I think as extensionally prior to 2020, I was kind of work out where the, the direction in which the world is going. And I think uh, the whole pandemic reminded everybody that nature will determine the way the uh, world turns. And as a result, we uh, have been reminded that we are no longer, we, no, we, are no, we have never been separate from the rest of nature mm. and that our experiences before anything else are supposed to be natural rather than, you know, social or political or economic. So I think that's definitely what 2020 taught us. And I really, like yourself, I enjoyed the stillness. The stillness gave me time to take a break from, you know, the rigors of working within a business because show business is an industry and by that token capitalist. So it was nice to take a break from the hamster wheel and observe some stillness and uh, take a lot of stuff in. I think given a lot of the socio-political movements we have seen in 2020, particularly uh, the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement, I think that was a lot more prosperous because it allowed for the stillness. It allowed for the stillness for the diaspora as a whole, for us to galvanize our voice, for us to articulate our experience, to articulate our suffering and do so within a environment where people weren't able to use capitalism to avoid having that conversation you know obviously the stimulus checks i think the biggest stimulus that we got was time for real getting some time back i think that's one of the been the most one of the most significant phenomenon of 2020 was that you know we got time back and this is the one thing that in our pursuit of capital gain we forget that money cannot buy 
and uh, whether we wanted to or not, 2020 forced us to take more time thinking about what our lives mean in terms of purpose and profession, more time to think about the state of our world and as who we are as a species, as human beings, as a society, and more time for us to work out what really matters. And you know, particularly in countries whereby we have given over our power to very questionable sources. I think the pandemic has proven that, you know, there is nothing more powerful than nature. Yeah, damn, damn, you said a word in that. I feel like I need to remove geezer and give you brainy person. I know, oh, I'm still a geezer. I think a lot of people realize that they're geezers too. And I think that's what's been the best thing about 2020 is that a lot of people have realized that money, status, profile, and a lot of things that precede or we use to qualify human wealth yeah. in the face of nature doesn't matter. Like, you know, not to go to dwell on it too much, but you could look at one way looking at COVID is that COVID don't care how much money you have. Telling doesn't you. care who your dad is, doesn't care where you studied. And, you know, there are a lot of aspects of human existence right now where we need to be reminded of that, that we're not that different as people. So you being a comedian, right? Um, and especially for whoever, whoever did feel like 2020 was the shittiest year ever and they turned, I actually revisited a lot of comedy. I actually re-watched the whole of Def Jam that's available on Amazon mm-hmm. right now. Who do you turn to as a comedian? Because I turn to the comedians to help me through some shitty times. Mm-hmm. So who does a comedian turn to? I think I do the same. I turn to some comedians as well. Um, yeah, I, I, even though I am of the industry, doesn't mean that uh, you know I don't benefit from, for, benefit from it as well. I think that's always a big part of any artist's endeavor to remain relatable, to spend time on both sides of the microphone or the proverbial curtain. Maybe I suppose the narrative that I look to them for may be different to just people just doing setups and punchlines. But um, I think yeah, a lot there were a lot of standout things like Dave Chappelle's Unforgiven really stood out to me. I also looked at The Last Dance as well. I think that was very big in 2020. Uh, again, looking at examples of triumphs over adversity or focuses on perfection in the face of adversity as well. That's the Michael Jordan documentary that was phenomenal. Yeah, it was really, really, really good. And I think probably this year, I definitely turn to people I see as being very instrumental voices or very integral voices to a lot of movements that have particular concern to me. So again, I looked at, you know, your Ilhan Omar's, your Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's, you know, your Amanda Seals, even down to your like Maxine Waters in terms of like, you know, voices that are positive for change. Also, yeah, and, and, and again, at the same time, comics I always look up to as well, whether it's like your D.L. Hughley's and even your Jim Gaffigan's. Uh, John Maloney's and just I think at this particular point I like most people begin to see the impotency of authoritarian voices where Mm. you know you're supposed to listen to them on the basis of rank or status Mm. and I think I have kind of turned my back on that completely so most of the voices I went to were people that were giving the most honest accounts of humanity and ways of trying to galvanize humanity as opposed to trying to divide them so yeah that's why I kind of gravitate towards the aforementioned people. The people you mentioned are people that I also respect and follow and comedy and politics it's the, it's the best way to kind of learn. I love The Daily Show from when Jon Stewart was hosting it to his transition to Trevor Noah. And I just loved that show just because I'm laughing and learning. And sometimes, you know, I think when you're growing up, there's this transition when you become an actual fully blown adult where you actually seek to put the news on to get your information. Whereas I think I was resisting that. I don't want to watch the news because I know that I have to admit that I'm an old fuddy daddy. So I want <laughs> to watch something that gives me the information of what's going on in the world, but with my kind of humor and wit. And it also 
it gets into my brain a bit more when I can look at it from a humorous lens. Um, so The Daily Show is great, D.L. Hewley, obviously. And then Maxine Walters inadvertently is a comedian because she's so damn feisty with what she says. So feisty. But, 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 you know, I look at it like this, you know, it's definitely 2020 has again also shown that there's been a meeting of worlds whereby, like you said, people are more inclined to go to their satirists and their comedians for honest politics. Uh, and then in a way, go towards their politicians to get a form of tragic comedy. Yeah. Um, especially satire now has changed so much whereby the stories you actually hear about what's happening in Western bipartisan politics are so insane. It's so hard to satirize. There's nothing like you would to hear like the leader of the free world openly engage in paying off a porn star for a sexual encounter, then actively deny it on TV. Like it's like an episode of Black Mirror. And yeah. the things you see in Black Mirror, like that could, it could, this is just embellishment. The reason why Black Mirror works is that it's a slight embellishment on situations that we've already seen. And then now we're seeing that in real life. And I think for you to look at that and think, are we, is this a joke? And normally if you want to have consultation about how jokes are structured, that, that's why you go to comedians to get that kind of honest narrative of what's happening. So I'm definitely doing the same thing as well. I, I definitely do that. And I think probably with like the emergence of like George Bush Jr. I think that was kind of the beginning of a great resurgence in satirical comedy, particularly in the States and the emergence of like John Stewart and The Daily Show and stuff. And yeah, I think it's been real good even to an extent the introduction of terms in our vernacular such as fake news has also taken away from the news as an institution for a correct uh, information source especially because we are all now aware that the news will be censored and will be treated by whichever corporate interests provide that news and you know with the emergence of social media and the true democracy of narratives on there as well that's given us an alternative whereby we don't really subsist on the news for real information so yeah, I think I'm exactly the same as you, Corella. I go to comedians, I go to any kind of ideologue, any kind of public speaker where I know I'm getting an honest, balanced account from that person who is speaking from a position of true self-awareness. So, you know, comedy used to have a real integral presence at, or seat at that table, but I think there are a number of content creators in terms of like podcasters, yeah. ways like influencers who also have that same role. So I now make it a point of principle, not to just uh, indulge comedians, but indulge all ideologues, all uh, social commentators and activists as well, because I think as an old spatial comedian, all of their platitudes all feed into me having a much more balanced creative vision as well. I'm not a comedian by any sorts, but I am pretty damn funny when I want to be. But um, it's that I always thought that where's the UK's Daily Show and I'd love to have done one, somehow pulled together a black version. And I think Bamus is definitely along the lines of something I was like yeah that when I watched this episode I was like yeah man this this is something that is kind of like what was in my head like I thought was missing from UK TV for us um, how did Bamers come about well you know you yeah you kind of kind of answered the question there is that with the new uh, more up-to-date and uh, more cosmopolitan kind of satire shows like The Daily Show and like yourself thinking we should have something like that in the UK because I've always felt like comedy as a honest form of identity politics was always crucial for rapport building amongst uh, people from various backgrounds. So for example, we, while we are all aware of the very overt and insidious issue of racism and white supremacy woven into the fabric of America society, at the same time, for people that choose to want to indulge the narrative of African-Americans or the diaspora in general, they've been spoiled for choice, whether it's in the form of 
your Chappelle's and your Chris Rock's, but even going before that and having your Richard Pryor's and your Eddie Murphy's and your Flip Wilson's and going all the way back to your Red Foxes. And even now, like those guys are being succeeded by your Hannibal Barresses and your yeah. Carmichael's and your, I mean, if, I mean, Easter Ray for me basically dominates comedy right now with the same level of integrity as a Judd Apatow. But what it means is that like for those who are willing to entertain, there are a number of different aesthetics and stories from African-Americans so that people can form a more balanced vision. Whereas I say the problem has always been in the UK whereby the uh, structural racism in the UK is a lot more subversive. And the easiest way I can describe it to listeners is that Americans are like, what? Black people? Mm. But British people are like, um, what's black people? And so, yeah, I, the show came about whereby I had observed that what the, the best deal we've gotten over maybe the last 25 years has been the conflation of black culture with youth culture. Mm -hmm. So the face of youth culture in the UK has changed significantly, whereby Apple Music will use young black faces to market their produce. JD Sports doesn't actually sell any sports apparel. It's essentially hip hop apparel, which again is marketed by the merit of the diaspora as well. Mm -hmm. But I noticed that when people reach a certain age, then when they are no longer young, that aesthetic doesn't really suit. And it's very strange that when black people arrive at their point where they're going to be arguably their most politically and economically mobile when they're in their 30s, you know, solidifying their careers, raising their children, participating in elections or participating in political discourse, that is not being reflected within mainstream media. I have to cut you. Yes. I literally have this conversation with Leon, who I host the Circle podcast and web series with. We had that conversation about where are the black shows for the middle-aged black person. And I think the range is between maybe early 30s to mid 40s where we've got the money we've got a voice we've got but yet we're ignored when it comes to anything culturally and, and, and we're the people that can actually for that maybe and i think that's part of this racism is that like i said by you being economically and politically mobile it mm. means that you can actually affect change okay. so this yeah. is why you know that was obscured so that was a really a big part of my endeavor at least culturally was whereby i wanted to provide a platform whereby you know not only have we survived the events depicted in like an anthology like Small Axe, but we've still had a foothold. We still have a very healthy and significant influence on British culture. For yeah. example, as I always say, without black British people, British music would be Eurovision, like the rest of Europe. <laughs> really, it's the, only, it's the only, only real difference. So, you know, that's another example of that. That level of wealth has provided an immeasurable amount of finance and revenue stream directly into the coffers of the British banks and, you know, have lined British pockets for many years. And I felt like that can't happen without these people getting their flowers. So Bamus existed as an idea where I could provide a florist of sorts for the diaspora, particularly for the politically, economically mobile people, like you said, who are like, you know, early millennials, maybe late generation X, who are approaching their 30s, in their 40s, where, you know, their motivations and passions exist outside of more adolescent occupations, sex and relationships and sports and crime and entertainment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have the same inclinations and the same range and the same misgivings, the same angst as any other taxpaying member of society. So I just wanted to provide a vehicle whereby I could speak to black people and people that identify black people like they're grown. Give us a synopsis of what it is, because that's the how. So give us what it is. So famous is, the word itself is a portmanteau of black and famous. Mm -hmm. And that exists whereby, you know, my, my uh, aspiration is to be a national treasure as well as being a, one of the most significant members of my generation as a forming artist. But I feel like a lot of time that normally comes at the expense of selling your soul. And that's a lot of the stigma that you deal with as a black creative. So famous is about my endeavor to still become very famous, 
but and successful, but not lose my blackness or a sense of who I am. And so the way the vehicle works is for me, is my journey in terms of how I am able to achieve that. The device I use for it is called the NASDAQ. The NASDAQ working very much like the uh, NASDAQ, which is the stock index in the States, where we refer to ourselves as creators and performers as a brand. Well, all of the black chip brands within the UK will have a listing on here. Yeah, so basically the show works by, by me aspiring to and covering my journey towards superstardom by looking at the black print that's been left for me by my predecessors and also celebrating the work being done by my contemporaries and my successors to continue to also achieve their rightful status as black diamonds within British culture. And when I watched it, I laughed, which is <laughs> obviously a good thing, because sometimes I'm never sure when something is landed on them, to be very, very, very candid, when sometimes our black content lands on BBC, mm-hmm. whether where how far the talent's allowed to push it yeah. um, before it gets whitewashed and told, well, actually, could you just curb that, whiten that? and all that type of stuff. It's actually very funny and very insightful. I love some of the things that you cover. What were some of your favorite sketches within? It's hard to choose a particular part because obviously it's like picking your kids. But I think the things that stood out for me the most were the opening intro where, and that's influenced, that was inspired by a, I remember a comment that Stephen K. Amos, a comedian, had made where he had said, you know, I have to wait for Lenny Henry to die before I get a chance to make my own show. Yeah. So that's why I had a big emphasis on Damon, it's now your turn, as if, you know, it's like a raffle for uh, like black creatives. So definitely want to take my, seize my opportunity. I also really enjoyed making the uh, kind of W1A sketch where we did an homage to W1A, where, as you said, we're talking about the bureaucracy of when you're dealing with a corporation to try and realise your creative vision, where people aren't necessarily maybe shut down your ideas, but very slowly people do kind of pick at it and offer their feedback until it becomes a Frankenstein monster you no longer recognise. So we just wanted to flip that aesthetic on its head. And then I also very much enjoyed the quickfire Q&A because that's inspired by the typical online microaggressions that myself and my peers deal with where people ask these asinine questions. Can I touch your hair? What is this? So that was one of my favourite parts as well as being able to kind of, let's get these out of the way now and have these questions answered so we can now proceed with uh, basically putting together a narrative and a state with a lot more depth and reflecting the mosaic of black creativity once these stupid asinine questions are out of the way that the frequently frequently asked black questions that people have to deal with i'm frustrated that's one episode this is it is, is it a pilot to see what happens or yeah. is it so stimulate the mind i mean you know i was creatively creatively i was i guess able to try and get around a lot of stuff and try and hold on to, on to their creative control so it looks the way it does and you know in terms of my co-collaborators they got to realize their vision as they saw it as well but yeah you know we are dealing with a government-funded corporation so again i am relying on the people to be able to celebrate the virtue of this as a vehicle oh dear because i was looking like okay series and i saw one times half an hour and this is my bee in the bonnet. I, I, I'll be in the bonnet for you because I'm sure you feel the bee in your bonnet. Because I was like, this is great. I feel like it could be on a bigger, wider platform because it's slick, shiny and edited well enough, punchlines, all that stuff on point enough to be somewhere else. But um, then Family Lamb's worked and Family Lamb's done well. So maybe it can work because I just, I guess, again, a British black creative, but not trusting the lay of the land in the UK. Uh, yeah, our fingers have definitely been burned. So I, I, I have the same misgivings as you. Yeah. Um, but by the same token, I guess I try to, I suppose I try to quieten my ego by saying, you know, this may be the, the institution which allows a thousand other ships to be launched. Sure. Because um, looking at Feminine, for example, like, you know, two of the stars, Akem Judifornian, who is the producer, and uh, uh, Bemi Akamelo, two of their first comedy albums were on Sunny D, which was my show from five yeah. years ago. 
and you know Bemi hadn't had any prior TV experience before doing Sunny D and you know but was a Shakespearean trained actress and an amazing creative fast forward she's now a BAFTA award-winning actress as she deservedly is so for me I'm, I have the same skills as you I do I, my 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 visions are for Bemis are to be on a much larger potentially streaming platform potentially like best case scenario we could observe a situation whereby I might not be the anchor or the host, like with The Daily Show for a particular episode. There may be somebody who has a lot more regular narratives. But at the same time, I realise it's bigger than me and that this may just be a brick in the wall as we continue to build, like, you know, our, um, I guess, like I said, trying to cement our seat at the table. So You're being very gracious because I feel like there's that thing where it's addressed, you kind of address it here, like, as you said about, you know, one having to die, one in, one out. Some of the sketches feature speak about that thing about you know two black leads oh my god panic stations and then mo gilligan did his show that you know, reflecting the history of black comedians in the uk british black comedians specifically and it was it was heartbreaking that show because it took yeah. me back for one and then i felt bad because like there's a bunch of comedians that i'd pretty much forgotten but not my fault because i can't remember everybody no, no your fault at all because you're, you're, but, you're you are everyone else is subsisting on what you are being offered and it's very hard yeah. to be able to find all this stuff in the same way that like there was a very early time, early noughties, where we kind of all fell out of love with like the offerings of music on radio and stuff. Sure. And then we saw the resurgence of SoundCloud and the internet, which allowed us. And then there were some early adopters who not everyone necessarily liked, but now music has now, I think, returned to a space whereby we are have democracy and we're still getting offerings and we can now act, we all know have the process of actively looking for what we want within music. Yeah. I think that's taken, that's been like maybe a 10 year process whereby now if you want to hear good music, you know where to go to find music that's going to be relevant to you. And I think, that was the issue is that comedy was deprived of that same opportunity. And like I said, there's a very 20 year of comedy dark ages where after Richard Blackwood came off TV, then there's been more shows in that wake about cupcakes and foxes than they've been about black people on British TV. So that's why the one reason I guess I try to be gracious about it is because I told myself I'd be back here. Even okay. after Sunny D was not given a second series, even after, you know, when it first streamed, it kind of crashed the iPlayer site. Catherine Ryan, who's gone on to enjoy a meteoric success, had not had any prior TV experience before doing Sunny D. Same with Bemi, who's now a BAFTA winning actress. David Ajayo as well has gone from being uh, with the Royal Shakespeare Company to being a very, very talented actor as well. Tamar mm -hmm. being one of the knock-on effects of that as well. By that same token, both Akemji and I collaborated on writing scripts for the Mobos for 2020. So- I know that. Yeah, yeah. the way, the way I, I see it is that like, you know, I've gotten here again. And I'll get here again. And at the risk of being somewhat egotistical, I still see some of the effects of the house that I kind of work towards building in terms of when I first began collaborating with my current management, we both had the endeavor to change the landscape of British comedy. And one of the acts that my manager works with, as well as myself, is Mo Gilligan. And so, you know, it was some of our early journey within the mainstream allowed us to understand and articulate what our wants and requirements would be for ourselves and our peers moving forward so that after Mo enjoyed like his well-deserved online success now that he uh, is in rooms with mainstream broadcasters they won't be able to dilute it and he knows precisely how to articulate the kind of way he wants to communicate his voice there's, there's I, other ways to kind of look at it i suppose no no i like that and i i think what well done you for being gracious and not being i might not be so gracious i probably will be but maybe not what's good is that in Bamus, you've got munya you've yes. got tanya moore mm -hmm. and who's the other lola, lola oh, Tucson, oh, douglas as well Susan Douglas, Lola Jagan. So I like, and even on the back of Mo's show, I like the idea of you, or it looks like there's a network and a community of comedians that are having each other's back because I, I, I mean, I wouldn't even blame you, but I would feel some type of way that if the Mo's and the Munias 
maybe the Judy's getting recognized now because now the industry's waking up and then there's a whole bunch of people preceding those new guys who lay the groundwork as it were not getting that recognition but the fact that you guys are a community and I think Mo did it well with that show honoring and acknowledging the comedians from before it shows that there's a respect which we're not very good at when we get when we're young talent we kind of forget the old people exactly and and it's a learned behavior it's a learned behavior when you are aware of an environment where opportunities are seldom I guess in that respect art imitates life in that you know a lot of our uh, demonstrations of what we perceive to be self-hatred they do stem from us being marginalized and deprived of opportunities and indoctrinated with the idea that only one of us can exist in a position and so you know I definitely is the song by J. Cole, uh, I think it's Middle Child, when he says, someone asked him about Drake and said, there's no reason why two legends can't coexist. So yeah. that's the kind of sensibility I wanted to migrate. And as you said, you saw most, you saw so many talented comedians who have fell into obscurity and undeservedly. So Bamus as a vehicle, I mean, to exist because I was like, this will never happen again. Yeah. So that was one of my inspirations to push Bamus because, you know, I look at the Angela Mars, the Curtis Walkers, the Eddie Nestor, the Luella Gideons. Yeah. And I'm like, again, these people crawled so I could walk and, you know, that these people are also still working. Yeah. But I feel like even though they are still working and they have these great cameo appearances across British TV, the totality of their achievements and the totality of their work isn't considered when you think of them. When you see like a Danny John Jules in um, Murder in Paradise, people need to remember that he's been in one of the most significant science fiction pieces that ever appeared on TV. Not only that, as a member of the cast of Red Dwarf, probably one of the only science fiction institutions that had a majority black cast with him and Craig Charles. There are black nerds nowadays who are always on Instagram talking about the, you know, the fact that they consider the idea of being nerdy black people to be nuanced. I want Bamus to exist to be like, don't feel like you're alone or you're marginalized. There are people before that you can refer to who embodied it in exactly the exact same way. You know, I look at popular culture in the form of cosplay now. Well, then if cosplay is a big thing, then someone like Danny John Jules in the form of cat should oh. be part of cosplay. I should, um, you know, uh, Lister as well should be like Craig Charles with his little dreadlock and red dwarf, people should know about that. So that was one of the reasons, this is one of the reasons why Bamus exists. Like people need to know, like when they look at like Catherine Tate doing these hilarious characters and archetypes, I just want people to know that Angela Ma did the exact same thing with Get Up Stand Up when she was playing the neurotic mother. And that was absolutely hilarious. I think even for me, it's stuff like Eddie Nesta is like now become a very recognized like mouthpiece on radio foot before that. He was absolutely hilarious in The Real McCoy. So essentially, you know, where we have to saying now, where you hear someone like Noriega, who was you know previously in hip hop and now speaks to his peers and says, we want to give people flowers on drink champs. Bamus works the same way as like a florist for these same predecessors. So that, yeah, even if by some disaster, machinations, you know, stop us appearing on mainstream TV again, we're now always going to have this reference point where people can always go and find a list, like an index of black excellence. And that's why Bamus exists, is that it's building that foundation so moving forward, where we were obscured from recognition for 20 years, that won't happen again. When you were saying, mentioning the legends from before, that they, and I was going to say, like, they're famous. They're like, they're, they are the famous. The you know, we can talk in community about Ernesto, Luella Gideon, all that type of stuff, and just step outside that circle. A white person might be like, who? Sorry, what? Or, and we could say, well, they're not famous, but they're definitely famous. Definitely. Yeah, famous. And, and, and so that credence still remains. And that's exactly how the uh, it works as a device. Well, I love this show. Um, I really, it's going to be on what, BBC Three, and then it's going to be on BBC One. Yes, so from the 12th of January, this will be available at 6am on the BBC iPlayer, and then we'll have a repeat show on the 19th of January on uh, BBC Three and BBC One. 
I mean, that's better. And I feel like there should be like, a, it should be a six package show because there's so much, I really, really need a British black daily show. show. Of course and, you do, everyone does. And I think they've tried it with like the mass report and stuff and a mass report is fine. But at the same time, as an industry, if you want to really scrutinize or examine things like race relations and discrimination, you're gonna to have to start at the other end of the spectrum with black and white and then everything else in between will fall into that narrative. And I think they tried to broach it before, but they've done so with kid gloves. I think yeah. Famous wants to be that unapologetic, you know, celebratory black show that discuss issues like race relations and social issues. And, you know, that's always gonna be a collaborative effort. We are aware, we coexist with um, Britain all the time. We wanna be able to provide the opportunity for Britain to do the same with ourselves, because as I said, I do not want to talk about this stuff as if it is distinct from British culture. This stuff has helped to mold British culture. If you watch kids TV growing up, you will know who Chris Kabusi is. You'll know who Andy Peters is. You will know who Otis Dealey is. If you watch Pop World, you will know who Makia Oliver is. You know, you know who June Sarpong was before, you know, she became the head of diversity at BBC. Like June Sarpong was, she was an institution on like, you know, for, for, for tween TV, you know, yeah. moving forward, you have presented in the form of Vic Hope and you have your Maya Jammers, but I just want that to be a long running chronology of successful black creativity and excellence. So there's no breakup. So on the basis, just on the basis that because you know where you've come from, you know where you're going. I mean, sir, you're an encyclopedia of memories and acknowledgements. I spent a lot of time before doing comedy, trying to study the game. I studied business at university. It's a social science. And so, yeah, I'm just really doing my best to try and give people the game back. I basically want to be to black British culture what Soccer AM is to like football in this country. And that's a fair ask and I think you should get such things. Last question I guess is what's made you sad, mad and glad this week? Oh, um, mm. great question. Do you know what? I think I have the answer to that question in all, all of those in one answer and it's been the attempted coup of the state capital in the States. It makes me sad because already I begin to see people trying to mitigate the actions of domestic terrorists. No. It makes me mad because I spent my last 10 years on stage being like, I fucking told you this was gonna happen. I told you. We've all been telling you. If you let us on TV, we could have told you this. So you could have warned your friends and family and we could have had this discussion before it got to this stage. So me, like most uh, members of the diaspora being like, we're not one to say we told you so, but we fucking told you so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's what's made me, yeah. Uh, mad and I guess what's made me happy has been I suppose yeah it's a little bit of what I and members of the black community will call schadenfreude which kind of works like schadenfreude but we combine that with shade because it's just cooler where it's like oh you realize that the world realizes that you people are like soulless animals oh dear what a shame oh no well we'd hate if people were able to make jokes and kind of build on that narrative black people oh! and so yeah it, I mean, like other black people, I think I'm very smug being like, we told you, we told you, we told you. And then yeah. you is <laughs> turmoil cause we told you. Can't keep saving your lives, by the way. Thank you, you're welcome for us saving you from fascism globally. Thank you for saving you from the Senate. Thank you for saying, and I suppose in a couple of years, you'll be thanking us uh, via Henrietta Lacks for curing cancer too. You got your powers on the 20th of December. I got my powers. So, you know, we're just keeping it cracking, man. But um, yeah, it's made me happy, man. It's definitely, it's made me happy that I think, as I said, I was existentially at a point where I was like, you know, where does it all end? Yeah. And I think 2020 really gave us the reset. There is a level of divinity to what happened with the whole pandemic and stuff. It was very sobering and humbling to see 
that something that can't even be seen has proven to be more powerful and potentially more dangerous than any weapon made, mm. any sanction applied to any country, any fascist or regressive policy. Mother Nature needs only wave her hand in this, the age of Aquarius, and you're mm. not sitting in your goddamn houses and can't do nothing about it. I think sometimes we need to be reminded of it. We live in a world whereby I feel religion needs to be more scientific and science needs to be more divine in that religion it's fine to have our truths but there's nothing wrong with testing those truths every now and again in order for us to adjust our theories and i think a lot of times science needs to understand that there's a reason why there's some things they don't understand and the question isn't always if we can it's if we should um jane thank you this is very thank nice you it's a pleasure to speak to you and a pleasure to see you smiling yeah it's a pleasure to see you and see in the dark for most of it and then <laughs> this beaming light well as the world has told us whatever is in the dark shall one day come to light come to light and you proved it in the evolution of this conversation thank you so much i was going to say something else i forgot what the bloody hell what's next sorry what's next is there anything else after this oh, um so after this we are hoping to resume the tour in the later part of 2021 so my show prior to the lockdown of last year was called the chocolate chip which was basically my most unapologetic show where i was trying to articulate the uh, complex of black anger globally and mm. try to uh, give a foreboding of what would happen if these issues were not addressed. So it has become, yes, uh, quasi-prophetic. And so I'm looking forward to picking that back up and seeing how far we've progressed. Uh, my podcast, Dane Baptiste Questions Everything, always having great guests on there and hoping to continue that moving forward. And yeah, in the meantime, yeah, just uh, learning and growing, living and living. Thank you, my sweetie pie. I appreciate it.